This episode is powered by Untold Content's Innovation Storytelling Training. Increase buy-in for your best ideas in this immersive and interactive, story-driven experience, where your teams refine their storytelling techniques for their latest projects, prototypes, and pitches, plus get inspired by 25 epic examples of impactful innovation stories. Learn more at untoldcontent.com slash innovation storytelling training. Welcome to Untold Stories of Innovation, where we amplify untold stories of insight, impact, and innovation. Powered by Untold Content, I'm your host, Katie Trout-Taylor. My guest today is Eric Cohen. He is actually the inventor of the Reebok pump and has helped launch well-known products for brands such as Swiffer, Pampers, Target, Pepsi, Johnson & Johnson, and Gyro. Eric is a recognized leader and speaker in consumer and health technology with more than 30 years of experience in developing products that involve new technologies to enable highly relevant consumer experiences. I cannot wait for you to hear some of Eric's innovation stories. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. I love your personal story of innovation because you actually started out as a mechanical engineer, right? I am through and through. I was one of those kids that took apart everything in the house and tried to put it back together when <laughs> I was starting at about five years old. Not always successful, but I always gave it a try. I love that. So, you know, one of my favorite stories that you and I were able to chat a little bit before we started recording this. And I feel like we just, we have to tell the story of the Reebok pump. Again, it's, it's that process of taking things apart, putting them back together, seeing things from different angles. Would you mind sharing that part of your innovation story? Uh, not at all. In fact, you know, even to this day and, and Katie, that was, oh gosh, back in 1988, when I was, I was 25 years old, just starting out as an engineer. And when I heard about this uh, project about working on shoes and footwear, I immediately volunteered to be the engineer on the project. So that's, that was my first start into, uh, into the world of footwear that I actually had no prior experience in. Wow. Looking back, were you just eager? Did you just tend to say yes and lean in? Or was there another reason that sort of led you to that opportunity? Well, I had always been an athlete. I played soccer and I'm still a cyclist, competitive cyclist to this day. So so sports and athletics were important to me. And when I learned that um, uh, Reebok was a client and they were looking at footwear, I was all in. And I come from <laughs> I come from a family where uh, nothing is impossible, and I sort of learned at an early age that um, being relevant to people and understanding people's sort of unmet or innate needs is a is a very important skill to learn in life, uh, whether it's in product development, whether it's innovation. Or, or just in, in normal everyday life. And I actually have an example of, if I can share. And Please. that will give you some insight into how I approached developing the Reebok pump. Yeah, please. So it's sort of an interesting story. When I was at a company called Design Continuum, and they're still around and, and very much alive and active to this day, which is where I was working since I was a junior in college, um, the owner of the company was looking to get a building permit for his new office, and it was taking him months and months. 
And I said to, uh, to Jerry, I said, let me see if I can get you the building permit. So I called Boston City Hall. I found out who the person was that would give, that would give out building permits. And I spoke with their uh, administrative assistant and I said, hey, Mary, this is Joe. I'm down at the site. I need to talk to Bob. And she goes, oh, hold on. Let me get him. So I get Bob on the phone immediately. I hand the phone to Jerry. In the matter of two or three days, he had his building permit. (laughs) So I only tell that story because when you're developing product and you're trying to be innovative, you have to be scrappy and resourceful. Um, Not everything is, is handed to you. So being scrappy and resourceful is, is almost a prerequisite. And that's how we develop the pump. And I'll explain more if, if you'd like. Yeah. And what I like about that story too, is I guess we'd maybe call that a manifest story because you, you spoke the future into existence by that strategy. It wasn't just uh, it, like you, you call it being scrappy. I think there's also an aspect to that. That's really about instilling this cultural value around innovation of yes, being scrappy, but also um, seeing the world and and going ahead and claiming that future state of the world, perhaps even before it's possible to see it through. And that will actually help it come to fruition faster. And uh, exactly. And it's ours. uh, It's there for us to claim, right? Um, We don't need to rely on other people to claim a space or carve out a space or design a product, it's in our abilities to do so. So when when we were starting on the journey of creating the Reebok pump, it actually, Katie, started uh, looking at running shoes to see if we could get people to run faster. Mm -hmm. And when we did a lot of the physics and engineering uh, to look at what we can put in the soles of shoes, in fact, I think we were probably one of the first people to put carbon fiber in running shoes this is back in 1988. And we decided that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough tech. It wasn't enough of a demonstration for Reebok basically to show Nike that Reebok really could be a technology company. And that's where this whole pump came from was sort of a, um, uh, competition between the founder of Reebok, Paul Fireman, and the founder of Nike, Phil Knight. And Paul wanted to show that, yes, Reebok too could be a technology company. So we moved from running shoes into basketball shoes. So that's, that's the, the genesis of it. And then we started to look at what makes a good basketball shoe. Can we get people to jump higher? Can we get people to land safer? Can we get people to cut harder? What is it about basketball that's that's going to give us a competitive advantage and demonstrate sort of a technological superiority, which was an underlying unspoken theme or 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 mission for the project? Incredible. Neat. So there's there's so many different layers then to the way that this emerged, obviously, around the the technical. Uh, aspects of the use case and also this larger narrative about brands clashing and competing. So what led to the actual, um, again, I think in today's design thinking language, 
starting at that use case and deeply understanding who would be wearing this and why it would make their lives better. That's extremely comfortable for people to, you know, for innovators to be working from that mindset today. Was that as established uh, at the time that this project was happening? Um, we had no idea what what pond to fish in in terms of what about a basketball shoe would make it better than something else. So we had to start thinking of different hypotheses. Again, was it jumping higher? Was it landing more safely? Was it cutting harder? And, and how could we do those things? And were they even meaningful for people? So one of the things we first looked at was uh, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could make people jump higher, right? So then we look at the average basketball player. And of course, your ambitions are high. You say, I want this shoe. I want to see this shoe on some of the greatest basketball players in the world, right? Sure. You shoot really high. And those guys are ginormous. They're 6'11". And they weigh <laughs> 250 pounds or more. And you say, um, is there really any tech short of explosives that I can put in the bottom of a basketball <laughs> shoe that's really going to launch this ginormous person uh, higher up to the basket? Sure. Probably not, right? So then we thought, okay, um, they get up in the air very high. You've seen these dunk contests. You've, everyone has seen basketball. They get up there pretty high and they land really hard. So let's focus on giving them uh, the best support we possibly can. And then we start to turn towards how can we give them support? And we started to think, okay, what's readily available? What's free? What doesn't weigh very much? And what can you get while you're still on the court? And you start to think, 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 and you think, oh my gosh, air. <laughs> air, can, air can do all those things. So the next thing, I always advise, and it's it's something I learned on this project and has stuck with me for the last 30 years, is as quickly as you possibly can, build something and try it. So literally, we took some blood pressure cuffs. <laughs> I, I, Amazing. I went to a local CVS or medical supply store and I bought a dozen blood pressure cuffs and um, I was very good with duct tape and hot glue. And I glued them into some Reebok um, high top basketball sneakers. And I started to get a feel for them myself. And walking around the office, standing on tables, having other people feel my feet. <laughs> you, say, you say, you know what? I think, I think there's something here. But Katie, I'm, if you saw me, I'm, I'm definitely not a basketball player. I'm height, you know, I'm less than six feet. Um, uh, so we need some, uh, someone else who plays basketball to see if, if we're really onto something. So the head of marketing had a friend who was the basketball coach at a local high school basketball team. So I worked with a phenomenal model maker um, Beth Sullivan, and she and I mocked up or created 15 of these, I don't even want to call them a prototype, because it was, it was really Rube Goldberg hot glue duct tape blood pressure cuffs and sneakers, <laughs> brought them to the local high school, and the first thing we did, we kept the shoes in a big duffel bag and said, hey guys, uh, come on over, we're going to 
show you this new thing we're working on for Reebok. Can we show you? And they come over and every single one of them, 100% were wearing Nikes. <laughs> so we, before we show them the shoes, we say, here's the idea. It's an inflatable shoe. It, it, it inflates. You can do it on the court. It gives you all this support. And you should have seen the eye rolling and the snickers and the giggles. And we said, okay, okay, wait till you see them. <laughs> so we unzip the bag. And of course, they, what they see are, are their monstrosities, right? They're their hideous, you know, five-year-old style shoes with blood pressure cuffs um, duct taped inside. And of course, they're giggling even more. And we say, okay, guys, um, just humor us, put them on and go about your, your, your scrimmage and your practice. So one of the things we noticed is other than the, the pieces and parts flying off that we had to re-glue and, and re-duct tape, was they started to get used to them and forget that they had them on. And Beth and I looked at each other and said, ah, that's interesting. No one's taking them off. They're able to forget about them and they're going about their business. After about a half an hour, we called them back in and we said, okay, take them off. And put your old shoes back on. Thanks so much for trying these for half an hour. Go back and finish your scrimmage. And what we could see was the Nikes that they had worn before these pump prototypes, they fit perfectly fine. And once they got their old Nikes back on after the pump, you could see them all relacing them a little bit tighter and fussing with their laces a little bit more. So when we first described the concept, they thought it was foolish. When they started to try it, they started to forget about it. When they put their old shoes back on, they realized that, hmm, maybe there's something here. Um, I didn't have to fiddle with those other shoes. Now my shoes that I thought were the best, um, maybe they don't feel quite right. So right after all, once I've tried something better. Hmm. So... In the last bit, we called them back in and said, okay, guys, you've tried them, you've seen them, what do you think? And Katie, one kid said one thing that really stood out. And what he said was, these make me feel like I can play harder. And that was the quote, again, this is 32 years ago. Yeah. That quote has stuck in my head ever since then, and has sort of given me uh, insight into when we develop products, we're not just developing them for a functional need, we're developing them for a very deep emotional need. Yes. And he, he was sort of the inspiration for that. So when we went to back to Paul Fireman and said, hey, you know, where are you guys in the process? How did testing go? What do we need to do? I said to Paul, Paul, we built some prototypes. They look like this. We tried them with the high school basketball team. And one kid on the team said, these make me feel like I can play harder. And you know what Paul said? What? He said, that's all I need to hear. Game on. 
He said, you tell me what you need. You develop that shoe. I will give you every resource within our company that you need to get that done. And I want to buy the Super Show in, a, in November of, of next year, which was 1989. Wow. And that became, you would have thought we were looking for the cure to cancer. <laughs> yeah. We were on this mission to develop this inflatable shoe that would make basketball players feel like they can play harder. Yep. Wow. It's incredible. I'm thinking about the start of the story, the start of the sort of innovation challenge as it was communicated to you, right? We have competing brands. We have a desire to outpace and outrun the competitor in terms of tech. And then we have this other sort of more, it sounds like at the beginning, the storyline was more focused on the functional aspects of the game. So support or ability to jump higher, et cetera. And at the end of it, what actually sparked the, the, real, the real championship of the idea and leaning into it was actually more about a feeling at, this, at the consumer level. Yes, it's, it's more about, you know, it, it, it's a term that we all know and overuse at this point. It's all about the experience of the consumer. Right. right? And, but back in, back in the day in 1988, there wasn't necessarily the same I mean design thinking wasn't even a term right um, we were still back in that was even before the term voice of the customer which right. I don't really care for but it, it was sort of before um, everyone had this common understanding that that products aren't about functions they're if I use Clayton Christensen's uh, um, vocabulary. They're about jobs to be done on both a functional and emotional level. Mm -hmm. And we all know that now, but we didn't really know it then. And what, you know, I felt like um, as a team, we were on the forefront of understanding sort of the intersection between the human experience and technology. And now it's like, you know, it's, it's motherhood and apple pie. But back then it, it wasn't really right. It was, it was I've sort of heard, new. I've never heard anyone use that metaphor before, Eric. Motherhood and apple pie. Yeah. I've never heard that. That's really funny. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just showing my age. No, 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 it's fine. No, it's, it, uh, it, it is fascinating. It's something that um, I think a lot of innovators struggle with, especially now that everything is centered around UX and CX and uh, user experience, consumer experience. What, um, how do we weed through all of the stories, all of the consumer insights, all of the noise, all the feedback and find that one phrase, that one insight or that with a collection of them that end up shaping and ultimately driving something forward. Um, you know, I'd love to know, uh, maybe it's a practical question. Maybe it's a completely deeply artistic and nuanced answer that, that ha takes decades of experience to get to, I would, but you were 25 and you heard and knew that that was the right storyline to pay attention to. I, I think a lot of innovators struggle with uh, ciphering through the different stories. Yeah. And I, and I love that question. And I think part of, and I get asked this question a lot. So 
I mentor and support founders at the Harvard Innovation Lab. It's a fantastic program. And, and I've told the story before with a lot of the uh, startup founders. And they ask this question a lot, which is, how do you know? How did you know that that response from that one kid was going to be so important? And how did Paul Fireman know that that's all he needed to hear, right? Right. Um, so my position is in the innovation process, there's two parts that are that are important. One is process. Everyone knows, everyone has a process for innovation, right? There's mm-hmm. consumer journey and there's all these steps and processes. Um, and then there's people who are, who are on this journey or in this process. And I tend to uh, prioritize people over process. And what I mean by that is you can have a fantastic process, but unless you have people in that process who are insightful and observant and know how to poke deeper than others, um, you're not going to hit those sort of industry-changing, market-changing, revolutionary product ideas. And let me, I'll I'll give you an example. And it's always about probing deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, I I was involved with a a project for P&G on the the Pampers brand. They were number two to Huggies. And of course, they want to become number one. So that was the mission. How do Mm -hmm. we get Pampers back to the number one uh, position in the market? And in the research we did, um, uh, what you learn is that uh, diapers have reached technical parity, meaning diapers hold the stuff they're supposed to hold <laughs> from babies and, and they all do it well, yep. right? Yeah. So functionally they're equivalent, um, but what's different? And one of the things we learned was um, uh, moms, uh, tend to, when they go to groups of, um, with other moms and their babies, whether it's, you know, a music group or, or play group or gymnastics kind of thing, um, when their kids are in diapers, um, moms compare kids, right? So then you start to probe a little deeper and you say, why do you compare kids? Well, I want my baby to be the cutest baby in the lot. And one of the things we found was that Um, one of the points of comparison was a baby's bottom. Who has a cuter bottom? Everyone wants to believe that their baby has the cutest bottom, right? Goodness. Whatever the metric is that you define the cute bottom, um, I'll leave up to you. But um, (laughs) And and at the time, Pampers had this history. They called it um, the waddle, which was, it would hold, it was so good at what it did, it would actually hold too much baby stuff uh-huh. and, and sag a bit, right? So the solution we came up with couldn't so much be a technical solution because it was a little bit like the, 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 um, the Model T Ford. You can have it in any color you want um, as long as it's black because their manufacturing lines were set up to make black cars Pampers has 80 manufacturing lines across the world. It's not easy to create a new diaper Mm -hmm. uh, anytime soon. So we came up with a design aesthetic and a new brand um, called It Fits and It Works. And it was all about baby stages of development. 
And we did two things. One is we rebranded. The second solution was using graphics and design to make the baby's diaper look trimmer and slimmer. Mm-hmm. And that those two changes actually brought Pampers from the number two position to the number one position. Fascinating. And it's just because we dug deeper and deeper and deeper to find out what is really important in this case to moms at sort of the guttural uh, <laughs> level that people don't often want to admit. Mm-hmm. That's right? right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being unafraid to, to keep asking why. Keep asking why. Exactly right. You know, as we're thinking about this, uh, this it's really a skill and a talent, if you will, maybe even an art form for innovators to not only be able to be observant and perceptive the way you're describing that. And obviously there are a lot of tools um, that, that are existent in terms of helping people become better at observing and perceiving and pulling insights. But then also that second layer, second level or layer of the skill, which is taking those observations and insights and being able to narrow them and then storytell or communicate what you're observing and what you're perceiving. Can you share some of the, uh, it doesn't have to be a specific, um, you know, I don't want to throw any team under the bus here, but when that doesn't happen well, when, when stories and insights aren't able to get distilled and communicated effectively, what do you see suffer as a result of that? Oh, uh, <laughs> yes, I've seen that a lot. So um, we see that a lot in our business and I've seen it many times over the years. And there, there's uh, so many examples. So let me just, uh, uh, if I sort of dovetail it with, you know, what we told Paul Fireman, you know, this, this one young player said, it makes me feel like I can play harder. It's, it's the, the women sitting around the, the play group who finally admit to us that um, uh, they're most interested in comparing babies' bottoms, you know, <laughs> hoping that they can say theirs is the most. It, 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 I almost equate it a little bit like to a stand-up comic, right? They get you to think about things that we all know we think about in private, but are afraid to say out loud. So when they tell a fantastic joke, um, it's usually a joke that we all think is funny and we all think about it, but we've never said it. Mm-hmm. And it the same is true for storytelling, right? How do you tell a story that is just so um, uh, close to the heart of your audience that they can't help but to pay attention? And you know, it isn't just for storytelling or movie making or sitting around a campfire. It's for innovators who are trying to convey um, what they're doing or why what they're doing is, is relevant and is the form of a new business, right? So when you're, when you're pitching to some VCs or you're the, <clears throat> you're the uh, packaging innovation group at, at a Fortune 50 company and you're in the innovation group trying to sell it to one of the brands you need to have that sort of consumer-led guttural pull where the brand manager who's responsible for profit and loss of, of selling product to consumers says, oh my gosh, like I get that. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. 
And that, that resonates with me and I know it resonates with consumers. What I have seen more often in the past is technologists who think they have the greatest idea and they'll present to these brand managers how fantastic this technology is without telling the story of why any consumer is actually going to care. And I see that as a a common problem and a common frustration amongst um, innovation departments who need to fill the pipeline for the brands with new products and services. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's so fascinating. I'm I'm wanting to dig these days. I've done a hundred interviews at this point with global innovation leaders like yourself, and I'm so overwhelmed and humbled by that experience. And this comes up in almost every interview, that need for empathy, emotional resonance, but very clear alignment as well with the audience that you're trying to speak to, what, what is on their mind, what they need to know to make a decision to champion or not. And lately, Eric, I've been interested in knowing what systems are in place for empowering innovators to do that effectively and for managers to ensure that their teams aren't shelving great ideas because they were not communicated well. Um, it's because I think we've identified at this point among our team so many drivers of innovation storytelling and strategies and ways to do it well and, and really amazing examples. And now I'm very curious about the systems. How how are these insights getting collected, organized, pooled? How are and that goes for consumer insights, of course. And I know there are certain platforms to support that, but also for internal culture building and storytelling around here's a process and here's where we pivoted and why, and here's the institutional history of failure or whatever. Like, what are the systems and processes that you've seen? across different groups for supporting this kind of story collection and learning? Oh, gosh. Um, I, can, I can give you um, one easy example of something that we are doing. So if I can quickly just mention, so I'm currently working at a company called Cambridge Consultants, and it's, it's, a, it's quite a large and prestigious uh, technology development company. And we're, we're creating some of the, the world's most sort of amazing first-to-market products. And it's a company primarily of technologists and developers. It's engineers, it's scientists, it's chemists, it's biologists, physicists, computer scientists, right? It's, it's very technology-centric. And they recently created a 5G antenna that flies on a, that is attached to a glider flying 12 miles above the surface of the earth in in a layer called the stratosphere, giving 5G service to to areas of the world that you can't put up towers. Amazing. They've created robots that drive on farms to pick fruits when they're perfectly ripe. Um, uh, They created the sensor um, in the most recent uh, home COVID test that gives it the 95% accuracy and they create technology to, to personalize um, um, 
the consumer experience in the beauty category. Mm-hmm. So it's very science driven. And you can imagine some of the presentations you might see within our own company, right? Sure. Either internally or to clients. So one of the things we do is we partner uh, technologists with uh, people who might be more uh, commercially focused or commercially aware, uh, like me. So I work with technology teams across Cambridge consultants when they want to tell a story and I help them craft that story because it's not necessarily in their DNA like it is in my DNA or your DNA. I can't I can't do what they do. I'm not going to design a 5G antenna that flies <laughs> 12 miles above the earth. Right. Sure. And their skill set might not entirely be storytelling. So the way we're managing it internally at Cambridge Consultants is we we partner. So we, you know, we 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 partner with people like me to help them tell the story. Yeah. And I have seen companies do the same within their own company. You know, I know that you give training, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I love the notion of, of what you're doing. And I can see companies um, need to be able to tell stories better. It's, and it's not just reserved for the brand and marketing groups, right? Everyone needs to be able to tell a story to sell an idea. Yeah, exactly. Especially when that kind of um, commercial and technical collaboration maybe isn't part of the business model or, or structurally feasible. And also, I think, well, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really smart organizational strategy to pair and provide those resources to technology teams. Um, and at the same time, too, uh, once that kind of collaboration happens, I, I, I would imagine one of the goals really is for that to rub off in both ways and, you know, for, for that to become something that is a, a coachable kind of experience over time. We're interested in studying this. This is why I'm, I'm bothering you about the details of the systematic parts of this, but I'm, I'm grateful to hear how that works. No, and I'll say what, um, when you say, you know, you hope it rub, rubs off, and I have absolutely seen that happening. Whereas uh, now, at least there's an understanding that um, technologists need to be able to tell stories. So that's a milestone in itself. Yes. Right. And, you know, at first they, they partner and they have mentors that help them tell that story. The next time they have to do it, they are going to be much closer to being able to tell a story and having all the bits and pieces that will make the story, which means that, um, you know, people like me, our involvement and our time starts to decrease because they start, you know, they start building their expertise and storytelling to the point where for, for some of the teams, I'm now just giving a quick glance before, before it goes out into the public. Exactly. Yes. It's fantastic to watch. Yes, because there are strategies and heuristics for doing this well. And these are smart people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're exceedingly smart. <laughs> they, can learn, they can learn new skills better than I can. Um, and and once, once they understand what a good story sounds like and how it resonates, um, it's definitely a, a trainable, teachable 
um, moment. And it's, it's rewarding on, from me to see, to see that skill set grow because we all know the importance of it. Eric, there's something that we're, we're trying to thread a needle with here among our team at Untold, and it's what relationship does that ability to effectively communicate and storytell around the technology and innovation work, what impact does that have on the innovator in terms of their productivity, their engagement, their motivation to innovate? And, and therefore, of course, those things that drive accelerated innovation processes. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether in the people who you've seen become empowered in this way, does it seem to have a tangible impact on their motivation and productivity or engagement? From what I have seen from an innovator's point of view, whether you're an engineer, product developer, designer, scientist, there is nothing more special than having a product launch into the market uh, sometimes literally launched, right? We've worked on things that go up on satellites. <laughs> right. Um, or we have things that a product launch means it's on the Amazon website or it's in, in uh, Target or Walmart, right? But for most of us, there's no greater thrill than having that happen. And what's becoming much more clear to technologists is um, they're, they need to be part technologists and part salespeople, right? I, I hate to say it, but that, that is part of the job. Right. And your fantastic um, invention or idea or technology, uh, you need to help usher it through this long process of going from a sketch on the back of a napkin to something that someone will pay with a credit card for in the stores or, you know, through the through a purchase order and and you can help that journey and impact that journey so again the biggest thrill is to see something go to market and storytelling and helping that idea um, find its way um, to commercialization is something that we can impact and we all have a part of right something can die on the vine very early prematurely because we didn't have a good story. And uh, the Swiffer is a perfect example of that. Really? That product, that product almost never saw the store shelves. No. Please tell that story. I would love to hear it. So when, when we were developing the Swiffer, and that came from a very open brief, we want, P&G says, we want to reinvent the floor cleaning business. Right now, we sell goop. We pour into people pour into a bucket and they mop their floors. That's what PNG does. We sell that goop or that cleaning solution. We want to reinvent the category. So, in the research that we did, we looked at how people clean, why they clean, what's important for them to clean, and you learn things like the kitchen floor. The cleanliness of the kitchen floor is a reflection of you. Mm-hmm. So it's important before you have people come over, for example, that you want the kitchen floor clean. And right before you're having people come over, do you really want to be dealing with mops and water and buckets and spills and cleanups? No, you don't. Right. So after some very good research, we, we said, okay, we really understand what the jobs to be done are. 
from a functional level and an emotional level. I need to be able to clean the floor, seems obvious. I need to stay clean while I'm doing it, and it needs to be quick, right? So that was the, the, the first result from sort of an intensive research phase. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds simple and simplistic, but to your point, it could have been 20 other bullet points, but we knew that those were the three that were important. And those started to drive the concepts. It needs to be able to clean the floor because it's a reflection of you. We need to be able to to clean the floor without getting dirty. That's important. And it needs to be quick and easy, right? So we came up with a concept of a diapy wipe on a stick. (laughs) For anyone that has children, you know what a diapy wipe is. It's a non-woven, slightly moist towelette that you use to wipe the baby. Picture that on the end of a stick and a pad, um, and you have Swiffer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So P&G said, great idea. Thanks very much. We're going to do some market testing. And they did their market testing, which was just describing the concept with illustrations, right? So just as we tested the Reebok pump in this high school, when we first told the high schoolers about the idea, and they laughed and giggled before they tried it, P&G got the same response. Mm. So P&G got the response, a negative response saying, oh, this is not environmentally friendly. Um, um, I don't don't like the concept because I don't like throwing something away. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we know that people use disposable diapers. They use disposable napkins. They use disposable paper towels, Right. right? So, and they're fine with dumping six gallons of dirty water down the sink, (laughs) but they're reacting negatively to this, this one wipey. So P&G took that as a negative test and they said, thanks very much. We tested the concept. Um, um, It doesn't meet our requirements. Thanks very much. It's a no go. And we said, that can't be. We said, we've done the research. We understand these consumers. We think it was a faulty test. You need to let people try it and see what it's like and let them experience how simple it is, how fast it is, how they get to clean when they want to clean. So begrudgingly, P&G said, okay, (laughs) make up some mock-ups, bring them back to Cincinnati, We'll rerun these tests doing what I call experiential testing, right? Let them experience it. Yeah. They ran through those tests and the results were 180 degrees different than the concept tests. Amazing. And if we didn't have those stories and deep understanding of what's important to consumers, Swiffer never would have seen the light of day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's that combination, uh, you know, understanding the storyline and then also what you said at the very beginning of our conversation, right? Get to the MVP as soon as you can and let people touch it, feel it, give a reaction. Um, and, and as long as that's in alignment with the story, then at that point, if it's still, if there's not the opportunity, right, then it's maybe time to shelve. But it's incredible. Uh, it must have been a very 
a thrilling experience. It also shows perseverance, <laughs> certainly, to go back and forth like that. <laughs> and and again, to, to see that, you know, Reebok was a billion with a B, billion-dollar category. Uh, the Swiffer was the biggest um, consumer products launch uh, in P&G history. Yeah. Um, sort of the, 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 the initial launch. You know, these are big, big bets. Uh, and they're all based on some very simple, um, fundamental understanding of, of human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. that's really, really what it boils down to. And, you know, when technologists are trying to sell their ideas, you have to remember that who you're telling about your idea is another human being. And human beings relate to um, human beings are social creatures, right? They have emotions and feelings. They care about things deeply. And even if you're talking about a technology, if you can resonate or be relevant at that human level, um, it's going to be so much more impactful um, and, and get your ideas uh, forward more often than not. It's so true. And please reach out and connect, um, especially if you're a startup or if you are, uh, have a startup function within a big company and, or you're in an innovation function in a big company. Uh, these are things I love talking about and love supporting. So I'm, I'm always willing to help out anyone, anyone who wants to listen. I'm willing to chat. Eric, I'm so grateful for the time that we've spent together. This has been a completely packed podcast episode in terms of the insights and the takeaways. And I'm I'm really grateful for the time that we've had together. It was my pleasure. And thank you so much, Katie, for having me. Thank you so much, Eric. I can't wait till we can talk again. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on social media and add your voice to the conversation. You can find us at Untold Content.